Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Jolly. This is part two of our special on new political parties. Joining me in the studio, Lucy Fisher, senior political correspondent for The Times and Times columnist Philip Collins and Daniel Finkelstein. So let's discuss what chances a new party has, whether that's Renew or Rubbish or the DMV party or whatever. Let's start, start with you, Phil. You're, I know you've written a lot about it in the, in the Times. I don't think the chances of the Rubbish party ascending to government are particularly high. Um, I think if a rupture comes in the political system, it will come from inside, not outside. I don't think anybody's got the capacity to break it from the outside. What people from the outside can and must bring will be energy, vitality and the sense of novelty because any movement which succeeds in breaking a, a completely broken system will have to cast itself as uh, somehow new. And that's perfectly possible from inside. That's exactly what Macron did actually in France. Uh, it's funny enough what the SDP did in 1981. You have to have that sense of novelty. So the outside people will be very important, but they can't break it. So if a rupture comes, it will be on conventional terms because both parties are now led by their Benite wings. And there is, a, there is an issue which is cataclysmic on which those parties might conceivably break. And there are, there's a large number of people in Britain who feel politically homeless. Danny, you you were there with the SDP. My conclusion from that is that what matters about political parties is not just what they stand for or who leads them, but who they represent. In other words, a demographic coalition. And the problem has always been, and Phil and I have discussed this often because the question is, has this changed? The problem has always been that there isn't enough uh, in the social and economic liberal uh, category combined with the degree of moderation, which is also what a centre party would try to appeal to, uh, to create a big force, to, to represent enough people. So you're always going to be creating a slightly unsteady, stable, unsteady coalition. Now, all political parties are that to some extent. But when you create a new political party and you're trying to... Um, create a new vehicle you need that uh, cogence and you need to be able to create a, a, a big enough coalition to uh, to win and to break through in a two-party system and you need that 
coalition to be stable enough to survive to an election. What happened with the SDP is that it was able to uh, persuade lots of people at the beginning, but that began to crumble as it got close to the election. So it was having 50%, but it ended up with 25%. Now, there are two questions about this. One, is that still the case or has Britain changed demographically in such a way that actually that group in the middle would be bigger? Uh, and the second is, it's true that you can't probably set up a political party miles before an election, but that's not what Macron did. He did it so close to an election that you created new uh, political reality simply by breaking through. So I don't rule out the idea that you could create such a force, uh, And uh, but I do... I think it's quite unlikely. Lucy, what's your take on this? You've you've written a lot about these, um, both the new parties, but also the sort of struggles in the in the Labour Party, the Tory Party as well. Do you, where, if anywhere, do you think the breakthrough might come? Um, I'm inclined to think that the, the big battles happen within parties um, as much as kind of b- between them. Um, and to my mind, it, it was pretty telling that Nick Clegg, you know, formerly the leader of then the third the UK's third party, the Liberal Democrats, is now urging members of the public to join either Labour or the Conservatives. He's not suggesting people join the Lib Dems or smaller minor parties or start their own. He thinks get involved in these established um, blocks. And, and they are huge umbrellas. I mean, it is, you know, talking about the need for cogence in a new party. There's not much kind of cogence in, in, in <laughs> Labour when you think that sort of spans from Jeremy yeah. Corbyn to Liz Kendall and then the Conservatives from sort of the likes of Heidi Allen to Jacob Rees-Mock. Just huge, um, huge spectrum of opinions about you know social economic or all, all, all policy so um i think i think it's probably worth getting involved in in the battle for influence inside um, an existing political party and a big part of um the reason that you know you don't have for example in labor the right breaking off and, and forming their own group at least yet is that people think that there's a heritage there that that's their own you know that's as much theirs as it is the sort of the socialists running the show at the moment um so there's that kind of principled kind of cultural significance of them remaining in Labour and beyond that there's the logistics you know all that data those kind of regional local ward structures that have been built up over years and years and years decades and um, is really important and that's the struggle the, the barrier to entry that a new uh, movement faces. I think they've lost it I think the argument is that you wait and you regain control and the last 20 years of British politics has been people of the disposition of, of me on the Labour Party and Danny in the Conservative Party capturing their party for their side of it and thereby winning the election. I think we've both lost our parties. I think they're gone. Uh, The Labour Party very definitely has gone. And I think those people who are sitting there waiting, expecting to come back, are kidding themselves. And they're simply going to facilitate a dire government if Jeremy Corbyn ever gets into power. And and it's ignoble to do that, quite apart from the logistics of it. I agree with you on the the Labour side, just by the sheer numbers of people who are are now members in, in the party. Isn't actually Theresa May and the sort of hard Brexit grip on the Tory party actually pretty weak that we don't know it it probably is weak it probably is weak and and the greatest threat to any kind of realignment in politics is probably a sensible conservative prime minister uh, to replace Theresa May because then sensible conservatives will have an incentive to stay and that's entirely feasible I, I would suggest probably likely so that's could change it but I think the there is no residual affection for these two parties I don't believe in this heritage I was convinced 
that the there has been a demographic change by a very good article I read in the Times. It's by a man called Daniel Finkelstein. Excellent. <laughs> and he persuaded he's, me he's, against my... He's, he's, sometimes he's good. I sometimes don't he's a bit usually iffy, like but. him, if I'm honest. But on this occasion, he was excellent, full of insight. And he persuaded me, against my better judgment, that there had been a significant shift in the class alignment of voting. I mm. think politics is much more volatile than it used to be now. Politics after a referendum is always more volatile. And the two main parties got 83% of the last elections. This is always given as a knockdown figure. That's a very broad coalition, but I think it's very shallow. Very shallow indeed. Danny, don't, don't feel obliged to say something nice about Phil, but... but oh, on, he will <laughs> no, We've had a lot of uh, discussion about this. There is obviously a, a realignment going on in British politics, um, which is very threatening potentially for Conservatives like myself. Uh, and that is a realignment in which the... Um, Conservative Party m- loses the support of younger m- and more re- and more educated uh, voters, and um, the uh, and the Labour Party gains those voters, but loses in its traditional heartlands. Uh, and I, I think the Conservative Party first of all will face an electoral difficulty in capturing enough of Labour's traditional base to make that electorally pay off uh, but secondly it'll become a different party seeking to do that uh, and appealing to that parts of the Conservative message that make an appeal to those new voters and of course to moderate Liberal Conservatives like myself that is a threat but I whereas I do agree with Phil uh, that um, for the foreseeable future that battle is lost in the Labour Party um, I think it will take a long time uh, to to, to to change uh, I think in the Conservative Party that's the argument is still going on really uh, and and I think that's another reason why it's going to be quite difficult to create a uh, middle force if anyone in the Labour Party was uh, wanting to try. One of the things of course they could do is to create basically remain the party um, but you have to then assume that all the people that supported uh, Remain think that's the central issue in politics which they don't all uh, and that enough of them would come over to you yeah. to make a political victory out it of it and be I like really that. don't no, I don't think, think that it will be happen. that for exactly those reasons so is I think that wouldn't be that won't be the way it will happen and I know there were lots of reasons lots of questions when somebody's talking about this but isn't one of the questions that always comes back to is who would lead such a if there was an impressive person on the back benches on either the Tory or the Labour benches that would Lucy that would make this question easier wouldn't it there just isn't anyone yeah I think that is a, a real difficulty and I think that in the UK um People often, you know, talk about Macron, who will be the British Macron. I think it's really difficult. We deride our business classes, our civil servants, far more than the French do. I think there is a there is an esteem for people who make a success in industry or, or the intellectualism of, of their public um, sector um, senior kind of mandarins. And I just I just can't see the people, members of the public, who are fed up with the kind of the gilded elite of the political class senior business leaders, other leaders in the highest echelons of public life in other sectors, I think still fall into the same trap. You've got to remember the competition here is Jeremy Corbyn and then somebody else, currently Theresa May, but somebody else. You don't have to be that good to be the best person. <laughs> so let's just conduct a well, thought. Well, having said that, um, 
they said that in 20, the summer of 2015 in a Cooper, Chukka Moon, and Andy Burnham couldn't beat Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, but that's because the Labour Party has fundamentally changed. The electorate in the Labour Party has changed, and the Labour Party doesn't want people like that. So they are homeless too. They just haven't realised it yet. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Andy Burnham's left essentially and gone to run a fiefdom in Manchester, and, and good people will leave. That's what will happen to the Labour Party. If they don't have somewhere to go, they, the good people will simply leave. But let's just do a thought experiment for a minute. Just imagine. Uh, for, let's just get past the idea that it's difficult to supply the system with this party. Just assume that we're going to do that. And the next election is a Corbyn-led Labour Party, a Tory party under, I don't know, Michael Gove. And then you do have a party which is full of really good people, which is led by Chakramuna, which has some Tories who have broken off, and which has an absolutely full prospectus and a programme for government and is surrounded by people who are totally credible. I think that party would do really well. My, my message has, has been a slightly different one, which is um, to, to moderates in the Labour Party, I've said, well, you actually may not... One of the things about the SDP, which really interested me when I was reading David Owen's memoirs, um, was that by the time I joined the SDP, formally, I was at SDP as a student, but by the time I joined the party nationally, um, David Owen was already starting to write letters to Mike Thomas, which uh, one of the other MPs, saying he thought the party was over. Right? <laughs> and I hadn't joined it yet. Um, at, at an incredibly You're banned early, from the new party. At an, <laughs> at an incredibly early stage, the, uh, it became apparent to people in the SDP that they, was, they were quite unlikely to keep their seats, uh, that the party wouldn't win a big majority, uh, which was promised by this 50%. They understood that. But they didn't feel they had any alternative morally because they didn't feel they could support a political party that didn't, for example, support NATO. I've, I've literally come to this, to this discussion from reading one of Jeremy Corbyn's speeches for an article that I've been uh, preparing. And, uh, you know, he doesn't now believe in uh, NATO uh, the independent nuclear deterrent, um, and he was he regretted the breakup of the Soviet Union. Now, people can decide that they want to treat that as completely historical and they're only concerned about their seats, but there's also with these people there's a moral question and the same comes by the way for conservatives so for me uh, for example if a conservative leader came uh, uh, who who didn't believe in abortion and who didn't believe in the legal in homosexuality being legal uh, i'd find that i'd struggle not electorally but morally um, and i think that um that is that is one of the issues with the central party. We're always assuming it can only be created if we're sure that it will be successful. But there are other reasons involved in it. And one of the things that Labour moderates are going to have to decide for themselves is, are they seriously going to propose at the next general election, making John McDonnell, Chancellor of the Exchequer, yeah. um, somebody who regards Trotsky and Rosa Luxemburg and Marx as his heroes? Not something I made up, but something he said. Uh, so I assume he meant it. What, um, <laughs> and one of the objectives of such a party would be to prevent a Labour government. And uh, Lucy, one of the things that you've uh, written a lot about in the Times is is the threat of deselections of mm -hmm. Labour MPs. Now, were that to happen, that could be the, the trigger point where people would think, well... I've been deselected by uh, Labour. I'm still going to be the MP for the next two or three years. If enough of them then broke, broke away and sort of formed a, a rump in the Commons, then that could be the springboard. 
It could. I mean, certainly I've spoken to Labour MPs who said to me in no uncertain terms um, that that is what they'll do. If they are deselected, they will sit as an independent Labour caucus in the Commons until presumably um, they lose their seats at the next uh, election. Um, frankly, if, if it's at that juncture that they decide to start a new entity or, or they look to sort of, you know, defect into another party, um, the whole force of any moral courage that would come from leaving now is totally lost. I, I can't see any um, elector thinking, you know thinking that that would be a noble move, them trying to kind of, you know, scrabble together a kind of last-ditch attempt to save their seats. It would just look like political self-interest. Yeah, the other thing we ought to do, and, you know, it's important because n- none of the three of us, um, and I can't ask speak to obviously Lucy's um, uh, uh, reports, about, uh, are Corbynites, but it's important to look at that perspective. If you look across all of Europe, um, moderate social democratic parties are doing spectacularly badly, and Jeremy Corbyn didn't. Um, that's partly because of the British electoral system. Uh, partly, you can argue, he did do quite badly. He didn't win the election, which any other Labour leader might have done. But partly, you can see that there has been a decline in the perspective represented by the centre-left, electorally, uh, to which Corbyn is proposing you know, an alternative. So I think another issue that would face this uh, centre party, as well as who demographically does it represent? Is intellectually, um, is it capable of uh, enthusing people, given that that perspective has done quite poorly in all the other countries? So there is a Corbynite yeah. perspective. The answer to that is undoubtedly yes. You keep using a series of terms which are irrelevant terms. Moderate, <laughs> centre, all these things. No, it wouldn't be any of those things. We wouldn't use any of those terms would be verboten. Though we would have to have a distinct political <laughs> no, the verboten, thought. The, 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 That's uh, what we'd the, call the it. The That's the name of the party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's right. not... Okay. It, it can't just be a sort of split your dif- difference retread party where all the people who are disillusioned with their old parties simply gather together. It has to be distinct. If it were just that, it will fail. But it, there is an awful lot of intellectual and political space between Theresa May's Conservative Party and Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Not least, simply saying ordinary, obvious things, but sounding like you might be competent, is a fantastically attractive political proposition right now, because neither of the two parties can command any trust or any assent. So there's actually loads of space, and I just don't buy the pessimism that, oh, well, we've the, the, the heavy shadow of 1987, it can't, it's different now. I feel I'm not quite sure it is just the the need to say um, obvious common sense things. I think part of the problem is that Jeremy Corbyn is coming up with populist, simple solutions to very complex problems. Um, And to take an example, PFI, I think people look at, you know, what's happened with Carillion and think that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's sort of answer, let's take all PFI back in house, you know, may, you know, prima facie sound attractive. The difficult thing is to say, well, yes, in some places PFI has been a disaster. In other places, it's worked really well. Let's let's look into the weeds of of, of which which kind of cases fall into which bracket and look at the reasons why some have failed and why some have been successful. That's all chewy and complex and and against Corbyn sort of waving a sort of standard and cheering with an easy answer. I fear that any kind of new movement would have to give such complex answers that people You've read a aren't interested which in listening is to. Unbelievably chaotic trying to do the most complex administrative task of post-war British politics and they are still on 41% and the Labour Party hasn't gone anywhere since the general election. Okay, then, uh, just because I'm conscious we're, we're running out of time, do you think, yes or no, that there will be a new party launched before the next election, Phil? Yes. Danny? No, on balance, I don't. Lucy? Yes. I, I don't actually know. I'm going to take the Lib Dem option to say I'm not sure. 
my hunch is there might be one and it'll be rubbish that's my my but prediction we, we weren't allowed more than one word I, I that's <coughs> rubbish with a capital R <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all right behind the rubbish party the franchise we can buy, just buy a franchise from Sally um, that's all uh, we've got time for this week don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your Android device so you never miss an episode get my free morning email uh, all about what's happening in politics at the times.kdk forward slash red box my thanks to Lucy Fisher Daniel Finkelstein and Phil Collins for now for me Matt Chorley it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of light-hearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.